0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Artbox Box I'm your host, Jason. In this episode, I talk to Rupert Ravens. Rupert is the founder and director of Shenandoah Museum of Contemporary Art, a curator and artist. We talk about his latest solo show and how he developed his style and what themes he explores in his work, how he started Shenandoah Museum of Contemporary Art, how he became a creator, and what people might not understand about his work. So with that, sit back and relax. And enjoy the interview all right well uh officially thank you sir for taking your time out to do this interview on a nice hot summer day here in the valley
1: yes it's it is warm out
0: it is Uh, Without further ado, if you could tell me about yourself and how did you start down this path of art?
1: I started as an artist when I was about five years old, and I actually have an anecdote for that, and that's I was in kindergarten, and I was in a Polish kindergarten. They had the kindergarten along with the first grade, so I basically went to that for two years. So I was in first grade for two years, so we had started reading. Yeah. And the teacher said, today, you know, we're going to draw birds. And so most of the rest of the class is drawing these clouds with little V for the birds in the sky. Yeah. And, and I'm drawing this, you know, eagle with his talons out and the wings and the big <laughs> beak. And and she comes over to me and she goes, ah, that's not a bird. And I looked at her and here I am. Five, six years old, and I said, no, it's a drawing. But I responded to this. I got an adult to respond to something I did when I came from an age of you're to sit and not say anything when you go out in company or in public, you know. Then I continued that and then I would do drawings at home and my mom and dad would have me come out and look at his new drawing and I'd hold it up and I'd get attention from adults. And as a child, that's you know that's very powerful. It is very powerful. And I and I continue doing that to this day.
0: For adults and for kids now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so from there did you uh continue a career of art during like your high school years or did you deviate from that or?
1: I always made drawings and paintings and, you know, my parents got me watercolor sets and, and, uh, then I went to a parochial high school and I had a great art teacher. I mean, I did the bulletin boards. I did the movie sets. I did, you know, the, the drawings in the poem book and the yearbook. And, and my art teacher said, you know, you don't, you don't really belong here. You need to be in an art school, hmm. and she helped me put together a portfolio. And that's when I applied to North Carolina School of the Arts. Uh, my alma mater. And, daughter, mother, by and the way. got yeah, and got accepted there. We had twenty-four art students in my class when I was there, and it was a real renaissance of art in Winston-Salem. There was dancers, musicians, costume designers, design and production people, and it just. Opened up my eyes tremendously to all the arts. Right, and getting uh, that exposure. Yeah, and actors, and so many of the people from school of the arts went on to be, the, you know, lead in their professions.
0: Yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> I, I could say the same. So, <laughs> so from there, you basically uh, started this path, and you're, you're just no deviating from that.
1: No. No, I didn't. And, and, and you just it was forward. it was a little tough for me. I went from school of the arts to Rutgers, yeah. And, and so I'm, I wanted to recreate that experience, and it was just a, a 180 degree turn. I uh, yeah. But uh, but then I ended up uh, having some great teachers. I had Leon Golub, and then got to know was my teacher and my mentor. I also had Jeff Hendricks and Robert Watts, who were Fluxus, also the painter Joan Semmel. So I had this real eclectic, if you would, you would might say. Of, yeah, you could say that. teachers. So. Yeah,
0: and it was just through those experiences, working with them and doing your work, and so. How did you kind of develop your voice then? Was it uh, something that you had been starting like all the way since high school, or is it something that you worked on during college, or is it something that you found afterwards?
1: I always searched for things that were important to me and things that were related to my experience and what I would term my personal mythology. Because I realized I had this story to tell. And, you know, and I kept all my paintings and drawings together and I occasionally I'd look through them yeah. and I'd find this thread or this narrative of uh, this visual language that I was uh, developing. And as much as I would make a radical change to what I thought I was currently working on mm-hmm. in a couple of years, it like that was the natural thread that it was it was going down. And in the 80s, in the mid-80s to the 94, that was about my most prolific period. I created more artwork during that time. Then I got married, had two children, and there went the next 18 years of my life. (laughs) (laughs) I am not going to comment on that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But art was still there, though.
1: It was. yeah. Yeah, I still did as much as I could. And I promoted uh, art to my my two boys, um, and my my son today is an incredible filmmaker in in Greenpoint, uh, Brooklyn.
0: Wow, that's awesome! Though I mean, it's through your experiences and influences that he found his path doing that.
1: Well, he saw he saw he would come to my shows. I would have different shows, and I taught at different community colleges and colleges. So. It was something that seeped into my boy's existence. And then when they got older, they actually helped me when I started a gallery. My youngest son, Gavin, helped truck all the artwork down for a show we had in Art Basel in Miami when I had my gallery. Yeah. And he lived in New Jersey at the time, and he got to Miami, and he's like, why do I live in New Jersey? (laughs) Then he moved down to Miami. He's been there ever since. Oh, wow. Uh I write for Dart international magazine out of Toronto. I do my top 10 list for art fairs around the world. I've been to Basel in Switzerland, Miami, Chicago, LA, and the New York art shows. And that's something that I love because I get to look at a lot of artwork and it really trains my eye and I know what's out there. It's, It's actually the best school that you can go to. Now, is it ideal? for experiencing the context of the artist's work, maybe not. And online viewing rooms, even less so.
0: Yeah, I read that article, That and you're right, there is a major element that is missing when you're doing VR stuff. But because of COVID, I understand you needed to, quote-unquote, survive. And it did kind of help get through things by having these fairs online. But you're right, at the end of the day, you're missing a lot.
1: You're missing... The integrity of the surface of any piece. And there's nothing like the ambient background sound Mm -hmm. of walking through the tent and hearing the din of the birds flying in the tent or the air conditioner being too loud in one area or uh, collectors ogling over price of a piece. And so it's... It's an environmental thing. Yeah, it's almost like a carnival in a
0: way. It's like a real carnival. First time I went down to Miami for... Miami Art Week, I learned first and fast that visual fatigue does set in quickly. I had to learn to pace myself because there's so much stuff and you get so overloaded.
1: Well, after I'm there for the whole week, uh, if I'm still looking at work on Saturday or Sunday, I have this experience where everyone starts to look familiar. Mm. Everyone in the aisles, you go, have I yeah. met that person? Have I, have I seen that work? Have I, and seen then, that? I know I've seen that work somewhere. Yeah. And the booths, they'll sell stuff and they'll put something else up. Right. And so they're constantly changing. So and it's a real of the moment experience. But you see some of the true gems of masters or legendary artists that you may never get an opportunity to see anywhere else. To me, that's one of the benefits, like seeing, a, you know, like a Anselm Kiefer Jim or right. a Anselm Rayleigh or, you know, a great American master, too. That's all inspiring
0: Well, let's kind of uh, pivot back to your work, actually. I wanted to know uh, what themes do you explore in your work?
1: Well, first of all, if you, you notice on all my paintings, there's a border. Yeah. Um, in most cases, the border— is a metaphor for the electromagnetic spectrum, Hmm. which is a limitation of our visibility into um, the world or our senses. And so that's one feature of my border. But another feature of the border, it is a right-angled limitation Much like in a cartoon, you have a talking cloud or a thought cloud. Yeah. These ideas or images exist within the border. I don't want them spilling off Hmm. into the border where they become an object, say like a chair. A chair doesn't have a border. It sits on the floor and you use it. Right. These are isolated ideas or images that I want separated from our everyday object reality. One of the things that
0: jumped out at me when I first saw it was that it is very colorful. You are not scared of using color. Nothing monochromatic here about it.
1: No, but that's how our world is. And I'm responding to nature around us. I don't feel that we pay attention to the, you know, sensual invitation of flora and fauna um, because we're bombarded by advertisements, by brands, and by news clips and public radio shows that are telling us how to think. And you'll turn on a show and it'll present the data, You know, and wrap it up by the end of the half hour or the hour into, here's how you should feel about this information. And I think that robs most people of a true experience. Hmm. Now, I moved down here to Virginia from East Village. And that was about seven years ago. I never really experienced the changes of seasons in New York. It was... Oh, it's winter. Uh, fall leaves. It's uh, it's spring. Couple flowers. But living here on the Shenandoah River, I got to experience the day-to-day, minute changes of. The birds, the animals that came around during different times of the years the the new offspring, the baby deer the you know when the groundhogs come out, when the weasels come out, uh, which insects come out when and it was so gratifying to really experience that, and it was it was like a an authorization. Hmm. Uh, of what I was interested in. Like, yeah, this is really out there. And I was trying to capture this in the city through my paintings. And I came and experienced it firsthand. So uh, that was really quite rewarding.
0: So this authorization, is it more an authorization to allow yourself or an awakening that you had for yourself?
1: It's to allow yourself to have that experience and to have your authentic personal experience, which is uh, like I was telling you before, like a personal mythology. And we all have that. And so much of our education today is kids are taught to be workers and to be a good worker and to know your basics and perform your little trick and get your job. And here's how you relax. You go to the games, you go to the movies, you go to the concert, and there's almost no time left for individuals to do some creative thing themselves. I want to push people that yeah, everyone could be creative. Dive into it. I mean, look at some of these outsider artists, and those are the artists I like to curate into shows in my galleries and, and the museum because that's somebody that's obsessed mm. with some idea, and they may have a barn filled with things that they have obsessed over, Yeah and not even realize that that's artistic in nature, that they've delved into this, their concept and their investigation so deeply. For them, it's just their life. They don't envision it that it, you know, in air quotes, is art right? Uh, or has... Value outside of their own interests. I mean, if you look at Henry Darger yeah. out of Chicago, who was a janitor and came home every night and did these elaborate yeah. little, uh, you know, cartoon vignettes on both sides of the paper, and yeah, they, didn't really have the experience or know the difference between little girls and little boys. He put nope. genitalia on both of them. So it, it's, yeah. but it's fabulous work. You know, it's just. Well, yeah. When I first time I saw his work, my my thought was that.
0: Is this guy a little creepy? <laughs> but, you know, once you start really looking at it, he, he created this world for himself. And like you just were talking about, he didn't even think to, you know, to kind of share it with other people. He just, this is something he did. It right. was just the world that he lived in. You know, he worked at the, you know, school during the day and he did this at night.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, my work, I like it to be humorous. Um, I use representational imagery mm-hmm. so that if you're missing the context of the piece. You still have something that you can take away and enjoy. Like you look, it's like, that's a monkey dressed up riding a bicycle, or that, that's a dog or Doberman with his ears clipped. And, you know, uh, but there's a, you know, that the title, so the the title of my artwork, it's like the hint you write down for yourself to remember the password. So, once you read that, it's the hint. So, this, the title of this piece here is A Dog Would If He Could. Right. And he would brush his teeth. And that's why the toothbrush is floating in from the side. And the character of these two dogs, they're the character of my dogs. Right. But they're not the actual paintings of my dogs. But that's, at had one very standoffish, and the other one was just loving, you know, right there oh, in yeah. your face. And then... You know, uh, the dogwood flower is also a sign of Christianity and saving, and so you know, dog would save his teeth if he could. So it's this, and it's stupid humor sometimes. You know, and I don't like artwork to be stuffy, high postmodern snideness in a way because a lot of postmodern art it draws you in to look at it draws you in draws you in and then it pokes you in the eye because it has nothing to say there's nothing there and so i like to have layers of meaning layers of color but it's also not a whole lot of depth there's the immediate foreground and the immediate background so it's in a way it's this compressed reality much like a magazine illustration or something you would see in National Geographic. Uh, You know, for instance, uh, one of my favorite books were the Time Life series of the Epic of Man. Oh, right. Or the space, uh, you know, those space books, or the illustrations of the Book of Fishes. Like, those are the things that inspired me to paint nature around me. One of my favorite birds is the Kingfisher. Hmm. And I had this little booklet on birds, and it was just, you know it's almost like Warren Zevon in the you know Werewolves of London you know yeah. here's the kingfisher and and his hair was perfect you know <laughs> so and and the aquatic theme is uh when i was in graduate school i got i was really into uh dolphins and i learned about dolphins from you know John uh, C Lilly who uh investigated dolphins and Actually, he's uh, created the uh, sensory deprivation tank right. as yeah. a result of his um, studying dolphins because when they're at sea, half of their brains sleep so they could still breathe as they move. And he wanted to figure out, well, what was that like being you know, this sentient being with this massive brain in this floating water. He invented the deprivation tanks. And uh, I have one, and I've used one. And it's just, uh, you know, you're floating in this water that's 94 degrees. Yeah. And eventually, you, and you're in complete blackness. And eventually, you can't tell the difference between where the air begins and the Epsom water uh, stops. And so you have this sensation that you're floating in space. And it's, it's... It's like becoming a master yogi meditator by shutting the door of the tank and getting in Yeah, because you have that kind of deep experience.
0: So I have to ask about this tank. So do you have someone on the
1: outside? Uh, You don't have to. Okay. uh, Because you, you go in for an hour, hour and a half. I've slept in my tank overnight. Four hours in the tank is equivalent to eight hours of sleep. And so it's very relaxing because you're anti-gravity. The Epsom salt allows you to bob and float in the water. There's only one small downside, and that's if you have little cuts, you know, the Epsom salt will sting you and distract you. So you put a little, you know, you put a little, uh, baby oil or a little, you know, something on there so that yeah, it, uh, a it doesn't get that. So, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's, and I, I met John Lilly in Philadelphia at one of his lectures and it just, he, again, he was an incredible inspiration in sort of the path I took. And, um, So my, yeah, my graduate thesis show is about dolphins. And I went up to Boston and swam with a dolphin in the, uh, in the tank and her name was Sandy and it was playful. So that's where the humor comes from and the playfulness. But today they have a lot of, areas around the world where you can go in nature and meet with the dolphins or that's become too touristy now it's like mm. you know it's like having this little enclave yeah. in the world that's beautiful and you know and here comes the uh what are those the cruise ship with you know 10,000 people that all unload and it's not an authentic experience yeah, About a thousand yeah. Monog- yeah. pet a dolphin yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's it's a little bit overkill Maybe we have too many people in the world, you know. Uh, I, think that's right, what, I think that's what uh, Bill Gates feels, right?
0: Well, there are a lot of people who feel that there's too many people, but, you know, I, I don't know where to go with that.
1: It's a small world, but, you know, yeah. until you have to carpet it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I might quote you on that one. Okay. We kind of talked about the issues and themes and a little bit about this question how much, if at all, does emotion and social and political concepts play into your work? Because we just talked about you're more playful about it, you know, kind of more of a positive emotion. And some of your work shows that. What about any kind of social commentary?
1: Well, there, you know, there is social commentary. There's moments like, for instance, this piece over here, uh, you have uh, with the hand pouring a chemical on this uh, dandelion yeah. uh, in a field that looks pretty much benign of uh, any other kind of uh, floral uh, or plant-based. And off to the side, you have the monkey who's apparently disappearing or becoming uh, fading. Right. I, I like to use the word fade. But again, the, the, the hand with the chemical, it represents the they, you know, mm-hmm. in air quotes, the they of who have made themselves the authority that this dandelion is a weed, Right When, in fact, it's an incredible nutrient. You know, our ancestors made dandelion wine, mm-hmm. and it, it's a, it's a, it helps you keep healthy if you can eat it. And you have all these people killing it. So where's the reality of that? Who is the judge? And, and so I find that a lot of society bows down to these corporations because they've made the decisions for us. And again, that takes your voice away. It does. And we're so busy in our contemporary lives, you can't do your civic duty. And so then beyond the civic duty, we've got people who go to Washington, and they've turned that into a lifetime career when it was supposed to be you're just a representative for your community for Few years, yeah. not 38, 40 years, you know? So there's, there's that too. Some of the other paintings, like this piece, No Accident, is it's sort of a setup of a frozen moment before an accident could happen. Like you would look at that and you say, you project, like the car could run over the dog and the, right. the, the truck could run over the continental, and the whole thing's being projected by this device in the sky. Is life this uh, already preconceived solution or you know uh, simulation that is already preplanned? Right. You know, um, I did have a young girl came in and she said, I-, "I know that is a machine floating there in the sky," and she had never seen a slide projector.
0: Yeah, I was about to describe yeah. it's a slide projector in a hovering which is projecting. We don't know what the image is exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the bottom left-hand corner, we have a dog. It could look like it's a corgi. A, it's a
1: corgi. It's a half a corgi. It's half a corgi. A, a, and you don't know if the other half of him off the image is not in some kind of truss for a paralyzed Corgi, you know? With well,
0: the, or you could also think of it from, uh, you were just mentioning, you know, simulation theory. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's all needed to be rendered was half of that Corgi.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, because yeah. then
0: you have, uh, uh, it was a Lincoln Continental.
1: Yeah, that's the suicide Continental. So yeah. it, it had the suicide doors in the back. Oh, oh. And oh, you know, okay. that opened the opposite way of normal doors. And right. That is a version of the Continental that Kennedy was in when he was... Oh. Murdered in Dallas. Of course, this one is purple, and I, you know, I chose purple for royalty. You know, there's some sort of royalty yeah, ro- associated yeah. with purple. Or the robes of...
0: Because, of, uh, well, yeah, uh, you know, the purple was so hard to have and make at that time. They had to use yes. squid Yeah, in well, order to get that purple. So that's why it became known for royalty. Right.
1: Well, the the Incas used bird feathers uh, and, and all sorts of vegetables for their dyes and they're incredible. And I'm I'm, I'm an ancestor of quichuan hmm. uh from South America. My father was from Peru, so it's uh you know, I revel in, in the culture of what they've done Beautiful with art. with a lot of their stonework. It's just oh. incredible that yeah. you know
0: the patience. Yeah. You know to, and the time to make that stuff, it's like you said, it's like a corner is a corner There's nothing yeah. They, they oh yeah
1: you can, and those huge rocks, oh yeah, you can 't even slide a, a a piece of paper between them no. they're they're essentially seamless, so
0: in your artist statement from your recent solo show that we've been talking about uh cicada cycle uh, salon style, you say quote. Our society's vision or visual is seduced by the illusion and bombardment of advertising at the expense of losing or completely missing the sensual invitation of all flora and fauna. Could you expand on uh, how you came to this conclusion? Now, you've kind of been touching about it already.
1: Well, it, again, it's, it, you know, it's the, uh, I grew up uh, dyslexic, so I was a bit outside of the normal, if you could say, air quote, you know, normal learning. And I, so I always felt other. In addition, I'm left-handed. Yeah. And so my grandmother, when I was in kindergarten, would left-handed was the devil. You oh, were yeah. evil. And so she would hold my arm behind my back while I would do my homework with my right hand. Ooh. So my, mm. uh, my teacher would say, Who's doing your homework for you? Because it was two different different, uh, characterizations. But you don't realize how culture or society or corporations are really manipulating your world and your culture, Uh, the songs we hear. You know, the the sitcoms that we see, they're really of the day. I mean, if you look back at some of the 50s sitcoms, I mean, they're done by the great generation. And though it's about white, it's about white privilege. And you you didn't see ethnic people. You didn't see black people. And everything was wonderful. And it was because, yeah, they're raping all of our resources and making tons of money. Yeah. Who's not happy. Right. We'll let you live in suburbia. We'll give you everything you need. We'll supply you with all of these toys and tools and everything you need to be happy. Don't you have a creative thought in your mind? Just go with the flow. Yeah. And so, you know, being a child of the sixties and that's, that's what I saw. And, you know, and I, was against the Vietnam War. And I realized that how can you kill somebody? How can you know for what? For the military industrial complex like Eisenhower um, you know, talked about in the late 50s before, right. you know, Kennedy was president. And yeah. I remember the day Kennedy was shot and the it was there was a national catharsis. Hmm. And Everywhere you went, people were sad, and I I never experienced that again until nine eleven. Oh yeah, and uh, and my son said, and it's so funny because the day before that, or two days before that, I was trying to explain to him what national catharsis was and that experience, and so he experienced that after nine eleven. Yeah, so
0: were you in New York at the but time?
1: But it's uh, we were in New Jersey. Oh, New Jersey. I, Jersey. I lived okay. in uh, Jersey City. Where actually I painted uh, at the time the largest mural on the East Coast for Jersey City. We painted it on the back of these buildings in a dark uh, road that Mayor. Uh, Brett Shuttler wanted to spice up. He would have breakfast uh, with the artists uh, once a month. And we got talking about that. And it was a process that uh, a group called Pro Arts and about six other artists, and we all got together. We made designs. We took them all over the city to get approval and negotiated. the city has a 3% tax and that's earmarked for capitalization projects within the city. And this mural fell into one of those categories. And so I put it all together and it was a a huge success across the street. uh, Art galleries opened, antique shops, restaurants, so really opened up the block. And in addition to that, the mural was featured in the movie Bad Company with uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins and Chris Rock. And Chris Rock walks almost the length of the of the mural. Ends. So, so your mural's in a movie. So so it's uh, preserved for posterity.
0: Wow, that pretty cool achievement there. To stick with it, get it organized, have that vision to get other people to get on board with you. That takes a lot of work. Hats off. I mean, I'm physically well, taking as my hat a, off.
1: You know, as a result of that, the New Jersey Monthly Magazine. Uh, selected uh, myself and uh, one of the other artists as the uh, top fifty uh, people in New Jersey for that year. So that was uh, that was a nice feather in the cap.
0: Yeah, kudos. That's that's awesome. It's your hard work paid off.
1: Yeah, yeah. So kind of does that answer your question? It, <laughs> it
0: will. You know, it kind of does because you have kind of answered it. P- yeah previously that's, that's right. i I guess that's the the invitation of of all flora and fauna, and you kind of mentioned that earlier where you experience seasons when you're living in the city, but then you know you came down here into the uh, shenandoah Valley and you really started to see the nuance of season change when I read your artist statement and uh, and it made me think of to ask this question because it what was it that changed and you kind of answered that earlier right, like you said this kind of um nonstop uh, media blitz that we all put on ourselves. You know, I, I know we're I'm part of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And it's so easy to get uh, those blinders on and to not really see and to lose the details.
1: But it's, it's also, and this may not make a lot of people happy, but we also live in a culture of death. Like, we kill animals to eat them. Yeah. We factory farm animals yeah. in unhealthy a- conditions, you know. We'd love our pets, I and mean, we, we'd love having these scenting beings around us, and they offer us solace and comfort, uh, especially during this pandemic. Most oh, people, yeah. you know, got more pets yeah. uh, to offer them comfort. But at the same time, you, you know, you go to the store, and there's this whole meat counter that is so completely abstract That it was a living being. And um, I think that makes a huge difference in recognizing your choice as what you choose. But a lot of those choices are made for you from it being authorized, again, authorized in movies and ads. And, you know, you got James Earl Jones on for Arby's, you know we have the meat yeah. and it's like, uh, and it's this, this, yeah, that's yeah. where I want to go because I want to eat meat. And I want to go get the meat. There's yeah. so, there's so many vegetarian options uh, today. And yeah. what, what's the karma of killing all of these animals as a society?
0: It's a price. You
1: know, what, what's the price we pay? Yeah. And so if you can do that, oh, how easy is it to go to a foreign land and kill someone for some idea? Yeah, that they've stepped, idea. they've stepped over the boundary of their statehood or, you know. So anyway, I'm both, in my paintings, um, I question that. I look at what were some other ways to resolve some of these questions. Like my 20-foot painting over here called Expands Your Horizons. It's the image of uh, of a starving Buddha who is down to eating one grain of rice per day. Like... And he looks emaciated. He looks like he's going to die. Right. But think of the discipline of eating one grain of rice per day. Pe- people in this country can't go a minute without having some food they're shoving in their face, you know?
0: Well, you know, from time to time, I confess to you, I, that's me too. Yeah. You
1: know? I, I, look, I've, I've eaten meat most of my life. I try not to eat as much meat as I used to. And when I do, I, you know, I give thanks to the being that I'm getting nourished you know, by uh, their death. Now, that being said, we wouldn't be the humans we are today if we didn't eat meat in the past that helped us grow a bigger brain. Right. And fire and that helped us evolve. Is it for the better? I don't know. Is AI going to take over the world and ultimately kill us like the Terminators? You know.
0: (laughs) Well, or is this all simulation, going
1: back to simulation theory? I mean, these are the things I think of, you know. And I'm
0: glad you're thinking about them because someone needs to. Seriously.
1: But I've also done things to challenge myself running marathons. I've done eight New York City marathons and uh, trained uh, to become a national uh, champion race walker. You know, these are things that, to, to push yourself. Yeah. And uh, physically, and uh, you know, the first time I crossed the finish line of the New York City Marathon, I stepped over there and I wept. And I said, if I can do this, I put my mind to anything. I, I can do anything. Yeah. Because you do it, you train for the marathon each day, a little bit at a time, a little bite at a time, you train. The marathon is the dance. It's the party you come out for to celebrate all the work that you've done. And um, so, yeah, I... I uh, don't make me cry. No, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> going to try to make you cry.
0: So, uh, well, this question may make you cry. And uh-huh. um, as you know, I, I like to occasionally ask philosophy questions. And uh, this is more about the, like aesthetics of art and things like that, in that frame. That's where I'm coming from. Okay. And once again, this is no right or wrong answer. This is your opinion, you know. Okay. Could the viewer be interested in your work for its meaning and be entertained by it? Why or
1: how? Hmm. Well, again, I use representational images to draw the viewer in so that if they miss what I'm trying to say conceptually and 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 really what i've been trying to do with my work is put this luscious sensual visualness on conceptual idea because we know most conceptual work is dry to the bone like a desert and it's like here's the concept that's it you know uh so i'm always thinking of that and it's for me a painting or my curated shows it's all about the experience. I want people to have an experience. Whether that experience is good or bad, they're having an experience. They may remember that. It may stick with them. You know, when you listen to a jingle on an ad or a radio and you don't like it, you know every single word of that jingle. You know every single note of that jingle yeah. because you want to remember what you don't like. But if you have a favorite song and it's rocking out, you don't really capture all the words because it keeps you coming back. And so that's what I like to have in my paintings is this coming back effect where it keeps giving yeah, It's not like, oh, it's a one-liner and the joke's over because there's still other things to come back for. The texture of the paint, the way the background is applied, a fluorescent border, an electromagnetic spectrum, uh, dulled, uh, bright, uh, diminished, yeah. uh, grayed out. It, you know, there's all these uh, different elements that I try to utilize to, to keep it fresh. And I actually am quite happy to see, that some of these works here are over 30 years old, and I think they still hold their presence today. Now, I have identified with the Pictures Generation, which is a lot of work of the artists uh, in this, uh, from probably around 72 to 84. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a show curated by Douglas Crimp at the Met called The Picture Generation. Now, they've put um some artists into that category that I don't think should be and some weren't included so it's but widely um that's sort of who I identify with and uh you know one of my favorite artists is uh neil jenny and if you know he does his bad paintings uh with the this or that you know this yeah. is a you know threat sanctuary and right. and i just they're so simplistic, but they were bad paintings. And, you know, Marsha Tucker uh, did a show called Band Paintings. Uh, she started the new museum. And so that's sort of where he came from. And now he's evolved into this, his windows are just, uh, you know, a look into the future with the way he has his, his framed elements. So I would love work that has that framed element. And I like to utilize that. I mean, I may do some 3D frames uh, in the future and the title of this show is cicada cycle yeah. because I identify with the brood cicadas because uh, I haven't really had a show out in 17 years right so i'm always curating other artists and and shows and i uh, haven't been able to focus on my work so this is a real opportunity for me to get to know and see my work again and, and to have it out and our uh, Our associate curator, Gay Savannah, is who organized this show. And uh, she was very instrumental in saying, let's get your work out so the public can get a sense of who you are as an artist. And, you know, I didn't go to curator school, and I don't come from that art historical background because curators that go to curator school have an agenda. And their agenda is... They want to present work in art historical context yeah. that is usually not about experience. And when I curate a show, I go off of the, the biennial style where you have six to eight works of an artist and maybe 24 artists. And you really get the context of the artist's work and their experience while I juxtapose uh, and orchestrate the space with uh, the artist in the show. And I I told you before, but what was really inspiring for me was the 2006 Berlin Biennial that was curated by uh, Mauricio Catalan, Ali Sabotnik, Massi Miliano-Giorni of the New Museum. And they did it in Berlin on Auguststrasse, which is a street. And the show started in a church and ended miles away in a graveyard with a sound piece. And it was buildings in between, especially the Jewish girls' school, which had been closed for years. Mm -hmm. It was raw inside, decaying paint, lighting, graffiti in the hallways— And they used it as is and installed things in closets, on tables, in rooms with no windows. And it was inspiring to me. And that's when I started uh, the concept of having a big gallery in, in Newark, New Jersey. That's why I moved to Newark and ended up having a 35,000 square foot uh, uh, gallery. And yeah, that's not small. At the time, uh, in the early 2000s, we were the largest commercial fine arts gallery under one roof. And we held that title, I think, until Zwerner built out his Chelsea space Oh, right, yeah. and sort of, yeah. Topped it, uh, us out. But uh, we showed a lot of work from Williamsburg. and I, I promoted the Williamsburg and the Newark artists yeah. and international artists. And my concept of uh, curating was to include legendary artists – national artists, international artists, regional artists, and even homeless artists. I had an artist who was homeless in Newark, and he did these beautiful styrofoam pieces hmm. because he could carry those, he could carry, he looked like Santa Claus walking down the street with this huge, you know, container of...
0: Uh, so you had like uh, the styrofoam balls? like Styrofoam, styrofoam. no, yeah. just
1: he would collect all the styrofoam, and then he would make these oh. painted structures that had this weight to them. Oh. They had real weight. That was the first show I curated was called Newark Between Us. And I did it in a 30,000 square foot floor that was in the National Newark Building, historic building. And they demoed the floor. So it had no lighting. It had no wall covering. It had no floor covering. It was raw. And I put up construction lights and bunched them together and had this incredible show. And that's sort of what really put us on the map.
0: How does one become a curator in that sense? Like you said, it's, you know, you can go to school, you can learn.
1: How I started was I did um, uh, web design uh, for a living. When I had my uh, boys, and so I paid the bills. And you got to pay the bills. I yeah. did less, you know. I and that that's also sort of the flip side of knowing what corporations and how they deliver to people, because I was part of that. Yeah, you know, I worked for Fortune one hundred and Fortune five hundred companies, designing their logos and their programs and their websites to sell this so yeah. to the, the American people. So I saw the other side of that. Yeah. I was actually a part of the other side of that, <laughs> in an odd way. But uh, my friend, uh, Stevie McKenzie, who is uh, a printmaker, and as a matter of fact, he is in the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest print ever made. It lays down the paper on a street, and then you do the. Uh, all the oil on there, and then you make your print, yeah. and then you put the paper down, and he has this, uh, like a roller, like a concrete uh, right. roller that, with a gas, a diesel engine on whatever, and he rides over that, and it prints on the paper. So he invited me to Newark and said, you know, the Arts Council needs a, uh, someone to, to run the Open Doors program for the artists. And so I started working in Newark and saw the opportunity to curate a show. And again, the uh, the executive director was a uh, Linwood Oglesby, and we got this entire floor of a building uh, on one Washington Square. And I'm like, let's fill this place with art, <laughs> yeah. and because and, uh, at the time I was. An Art Enthusiast, I was a collector. I was buying art from the artists in Williamsburg and in, right. and in Newark. And Linwood had this idea, well, we can put 20 easels along this side and we'll block off the rest of it. And I'm like, no, let's get big installations in here. Let's put big wall works up. And that's what we did. That was actually the first show I did in Newark called Facing Newark. And it was beautiful because... It was windows all the way around. It was a, I think twenty two thousand square feet space foot space. Yeah. And small so space. you could see out the windows all of Newark. Oh. The ironbound section and the downtown section. And you know, and then after a year and a half, that's when I saw the Berlin Biennial. And I was like, There is so much empty space in Newark. Let's let's kick it up a notch. Right.
0: Or, and then you know. it started the path that, of doing curating as well. Right,
1: right. So that's how I started uh, curating, just putting work together. That I loved, and that first show facing Newark, I was doing uh, videos of storms. You know, the girls gone wild, and, oh. and I did oh, those um, days, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I did a first show. I included my work in the show, and after that, I realized when you curate a show, you you can't put your own work in it mm. because I was trying to be part of the club and part of the team. Yeah. But it was very awkward, and I never did that since then. So.
0: Well, you learn by doing. Yeah, yeah. Very tough question right here. Uh-oh. I don't know if you can answer this one. What's something that people might not understand about your work?
1: They might not understand that sort of the underlying, that one underlying context is don't take yourself so seriously. Mm. You know, even though the world can be coming down around you, you need to find some levity. You need to find some you know, peace within, and these artworks are moments. And it's about arresting a moment and being in a moment and not worrying about yesterday and not uh, being in horror about tomorrow, which hasn't come. Both of those we don't have. We have this moment. And for me, the beauty of the act of painting, it keeps me in that moment of that painting because as I'm painting, my mind is in the end of my brush, and I'm right there. Nothing else exists. Oh yeah. I'm not thinking about who died in the past, and I'm not thinking about where money's coming from in the future. I'm in that moment, and yeah. so I'd like people to realize, like, don't take everything so seriously and and, and be in the moment. There's a lot. Uh, there's a lot in the paintings. I don't expect everyone to get it, and They may not get it for years. I got people who bought paintings. And then one day they'll call me up and they'll say, oh my God, you're not going to believe it. I finally got this portion of your painting. And I've been staring at it for 20 years. And and that to me shows that there's still something to see, that the the painting, that there's still something giving. You can still learn from it. Yeah. I think that, a lot of the young people today with their heads buried in their smart devices miss that. Yeah, I mean, you could watch videos from all over the world about animals going extinct or stupid funny memes or, you know, people falling down or falling off the roof or mm-hmm. tripping on the bicycle or you know, skateboarding down the rail and fall. Uh, yeah, but it's postage stamp size. Yeah, And... Is that like a dream or is it less than a dream? Is it reality? Is it an experience? You know? Hmm. What's your experience from watching a little video than to going and seeing a real lion in the wild? Yeah. Or going and experiencing jellyfish floating in the water that you can't get in. I think we need to know there's another side. Yeah. I think that that there's a larger uh, world to experience I urge everyone to put their smart device away and turn it off just for one day.
0: After the interview, of course.
1: Okay, yeah. After, you know. after the interview, you could do that. I found, you know, looking at insects and watching them, you know, I had a little colony of, of ants in my house. And I watched them, you know, like the worker ants bring the dead ants out. They'd walk around for 20, 30 minutes to find a spot. To drop the body. And so, you know, I would leave little morsels of apple, a little, and you know. I, I egged them on so, so they, they would stay there. Yeah. Because I, I watched it. They became my, my little friends. I mean, <laughs> that, that's what I did during the pandemic.
0: <laughs> what is the Shenandoah Museum of Contemporary Art, and how did you become involved?
1: Well, I moved down here on a whim. A fellow I went to graduate school with lives down here. I showed him at my uh, gallery up in Patterson. And one day he's... And and I'd been looking for a little cabin upstate New York to have a place to get out of the city. He sent me a picture of this little black cabin and a red barn and a for sale sign on a Tuesday in April 2014. I came down on Saturday and I bought the place on Sunday. Wow. And because it was... The house, i it was my vision yeah. of what I always seen as what I wanted. When we walked down to the house to look at it, I saw the realtor outside. I said, I'll take it. He's like, well, don't you want to go in and look? At it? I said, I know this house is totally ready yeah. to move in. He said, well, I, in fact, it is. But why don't you come in and look at it? anyway?" So I, I did that. But every house I'd looked at upstate New York, The barn needed to be torn down. The foundation needed to be fixed. or The the drainage, um, sewage drainage had to be fixed. Or the roof, it was always something. Or it was too close to the highway and the driveway needed to be moved. And this was perfect. Isolated little uh, area on the Shenandoah River in a little community. And usually only the mail truck comes by. So I said, you know, uh, I had my gallery in Patterson at the time I moved there. I was tired of driving back and forth from the East Village to uh, Patterson. Yeah. And I had moved there right by the Great Falls, which is a national park within the city. (laughs) And they closed the park for four years of renovation. So I thought, well, maybe I'm done. Cabin came up and I thought, I need a break. Let me take a break. So I moved down here, moved everything. In the interim, though, I also had a... uh, there was a fire in the building where I was in Patterson. I had all my things in storage. I lost a lot of artwork, a mm. lot of paperwork, a mm. lot of my library, yeah. because the water had come down from the floors above from the firemen yeah. and the sprinklers, and sadly, the landlord never called me and alerted me to the fact. Oh. And I had stopped over to pick something up, and I Went down the steps into my storage and stepped in water. And I thought, this smells a little damp. And the lights didn't go on. And I took my phone and shined it around. There was black mold. Boxes were collapsed. It was that it was, been it was a nightmare. So
0: Oh, I would have been crushed. I got
1: the, uh, the cabin. I thought, well, I'll just move down here. And I cleaned all that up, moved down here, and took a much-needed break from doing— Both of my galleries, uh, Rupert Raven's Contemporary in Newark was, we were there for seven years, seven, eight years. And then I was in Patterson for a year and a half. And I would do biennial style shows. So I would do one per year. Well, biennials are supposed to be one every two years. And sometimes I would do two in one year. (laughs) And so it was a lot of work. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed working with the artists. The shows intuitively fell together, but it was physically brutal. So I came down, I took a break. And after about two and a half years, I thought, hmm, I need a space. I better get a space to show work again. Because I miss that. Yeah. I miss dealing with that creative energy. Of, of the artist in that, because every artist is completely unique. Oh, yes. Even if they copy or appropriate some other artist, they're still unique. They still have their own mythology, their own story, their own quirks. And much like every individual in the world, we're all unique, even with, <laughs> but uh, R- biologically. We, yeah. <laughs> uh, unless we're the clones. But um, <laughs> so when I looked back, I realized I really operated my galleries like a nonprofit. Even though they were commercial galleries, the, the, some of the things we did were very much like a nonprofit. So I thought, there isn't a huge collecting community here in this area. So let me open up a nonprofit and I can get some more grants and uh, I'll start a museum. So I did that in October 2017 and found a space over in Strasbourg in uh, early 2018. And I pulled together the first show. I mean, we had about, I think it was about 5,000 square foot space. And it was an old in an old section of the Borden's Lumberyard. So I pulled together a show out of my collection, and a couple local artists and just threw up a show. And and so everyone loved it. And then I did this, the the Strasbourg Biennial throughout the town. And we had multiple locations, including the gallery. They gave us the old water treatment plant. And I had uh work by Yoko Ono in there and other artists. Again, I always like to put in the legendary artist and then, you know, international, national, and and local right. artists. Yeah. So that's how I that's how I started because I just wanted to show people the power of the experience of art that doesn't exist on the scale that I wanted to see it here. Yeah. From that space, which we were in a building which had no insulation, no heating, mm. no air conditioning. Mm. It was brutal. Yeah. But, you know, people, it's, it's funny what people will sacrifice. Yeah. Uh, artists will for art. So we lost that space uh, right before right before COVID, actually. And so it sort of all worked out because when COVID came, we would have lost the space anyway. Mm. So it was sort of a precursor. I was happy that that happened. But I've been looking at other buildings and looking for huge, I'm always looking for the largest space I can get. And we just lost out on a piece of property that was 48 acres, three buildings that totaled 372,000. 100,000 square feet, and the building in the back was 120,000 square feet Jeez. with a crane in it. I mean, I could have craned in like some Richard Sierra sculptures <laughs> or some huge right. sculptures, in. Yeah. but as soon as I would become interested in properties— like, all of a sudden, these are, this is a small town. People, other people start to get interested, and then people come by. They, from out of town, they bought it. So I lost oh, the opportunity, but oh. it could have been a great space. Right now, that's where I am, looking for a space and the possibility and also realizing that people really need to be educated into what fine art is and to have the experience.
0: Education, yes. I think it's more about the exposure. The more exposure you give to them, to well, the, uh,
1: yeah, the the more experience and the fun. I mean, right. I I wanted to have Nick Cave performance with the horses. Yeah, I think that would go over big here, where the you know it's, it's yeah, two just, dancers make up one horse. Yep. and then they have the music, and then they separate, and it's this sort of tribal thing. And he makes all those sound costumes. It's oh just, yeah, he does all. They're of just it. tremendous. Yeah. but I didn't. I wanted to get him for the Strasbourg Biennial, but the piece was at that time in Australia, so oh. we couldn't. We couldn't, we couldn't have them. But my concept was to make uh, a museum like Mass Mocha, which is in North Adams, Massachusetts. Right, yeah. Here. So, sort of a mid Atlantic version of that, that would become a destination, an you know, area for local businesses, uh, a, a brewery, a restaurant, you know, like a real destination.
0: Yeah, in, in, in a, a community kind of meeting center, places like right. that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So let me uh, ask this question, it's the last question. What advice would you give to your past self and to other artists?
1: That's a good, that's a very good question. because hindsight is always 20-20. I I would say, I would tell myself and other artists is to really pay attention to the signals they're getting from themselves, the intuitive signals or the gut feeling. And follow those feelings. Because in most instances, I denied those feelings. And they would come back to bite me. Often to, you know, I suffered tremendously as a result of it. And if I had just paid attention to that intuition, of course, that being said, all of those elements of my life made me who I am today. So is that the right advice to give? You know, I don't know. But I'd like to see people be more aware and more responsible for the decisions that they make in their life and their choices yeah and for artists not to question their investigation and to go as deeply as they want in one subject or you know i i i uh, and i've also taught graduate school students you know i've i've i've, I've helped them with fabrication i've helped them with thesis mm-hmm. writing and critiques of their work. And I would also say, go look as much work as you possibly can. And read, read books. It's, it's rich, r- reading books, r- reading stories are very rich. Learn what materials they could utilize in their artwork. What's some new material? I mean, when you see these new prints uh, being put on D-Bond yeah. and um, the way they're hung, and they're not framed, and they're sort of isolated mechanical objects in space. It's, it's quite beautiful, you know, what they can do. And there's also, you know, today, NFTs. You know, oh, and yeah. There's, uh, <laughs> you know, digital work. I mean, there's just so, so many options today. You know, the audience right. may not even be born for that yet. Exactly. And it's going to be artists pouring over. Like, look at how we look back at older books and find some that's so obscure. And, and that's the one thing that I think we miss today, going to the library and finding some obscure book uh, <laughs> with some obscure illustrations or concepts or ideas. Uh, I also find it's a really interesting to look back through old patents <laughs> uh, of what— uh, People drew yeah. uh, for patent devices and the crazy ideas. I mean, if you look back at the patent of toilet paper, yeah. you see that it folds over the front, yep. not behind. So exactly. that is the way it's supposed to be for That's all the of you people out there who don't know how to put your toilet <laughs> paper roll on, yeah. which you may have had a, a lack of experience with when we were we had the toilet paper shortage during the oh, during yeah. the pandemic. I would just encourage everyone to, to be creative, think creatively, be in the moment, and do something creative. Write a poem, write a story, do a drawing, yeah. make a collage, do a uh, earthwork outside, plant some flowers, plant some trees, have a garden, start a rescue farm for animals. Yeah. Do something that gives back to the, to the earth. Because we've taken so much, oh, yes. you know, it's it's time to give back and give back to your community. Help those less fortunate, but do it in a creative way. I mean,
0: in in your way, yeah, yeah, in your own yeah, way, yeah, in
1: your own your own unique way. I mean, i I always try. I, what I really would, what I really like to do, is to put artwork in some place you're not looking for it. Until you stumble across it, yeah. and it's a work. Hmm. Well, it, you know, it's like the Inuit people up in the Arctic would leave beautiful little carved polar bears and fish and different objects on the path that people walked. Hmm. And you would walk and you'd find this. Well, you didn't take it. Of course, people went and took them all, oh, yeah. uh, you know, the, to sell them. But you know, it's like when you're on the Appalachian Trail, people will carve something and leave it to, for someone else to find. Yep. Like, and so that's in a way, it's a pay it forward sort of thing, uh, where you're presenting something. I I do two display windows over in Strasbourg, and they're I guess forty by forty inches. You know, like a cork boarded window. Oh, and right, where the uh, community. Park they're, is. they're outside on their community pavilion uh, on King Street in Strasburg. And I print out some work by a contemporary or modern master from the 20th century. And there they are inside the building, 24 7. And people just walking through town can find them. And these are people who may never set foot in a museum in the city, in a, yeah. and may never open up an art book or ever discover this artist. So I have a little blurb about the artist, you know, or logo that with museum, and I call it the temporary contemporary. Yeah. And I'll have some prints, drawings, and, you know, maybe maybe six or seven works by the artist, and one large one. And, and we change it every month, 12 by 12, right? So it's 12 artists, 12 months, so... What I love is this is, again, this is a real in-the-moment experience yeah, and not scripted. And and I think that's how life has to be. You know, there's no dress rehearsals in life. It is. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm humbled by uh, this opportunity.
0: Well, thank you for taking the time to do it, though. I mean, really, this is time taken. And I think it was time well
1: spent. Thank you.
0: I want to say thank you to Rupert for taking the time to do the interview. If you want to learn more about Rupert, head on over to design.next.us. That's design.n.e.x.x.t.us and next.us. To learn more about Shenandoah Museum of Contemporary Art, head on over to shinmoca.org. That's S-H-E-N-M-O-C-A dot O-R-G. To hear past episodes of ArtBox, go to the website at artboxdnv.com. Artboxdnv is on Instagram at, you guessed it, at artboxdnv. Until next time, thank you for listening.